Hopefully you have a Bible there near you. Hopefully you brought one with you. If you didn't, there's one close to you in the pew, but uh, open it to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you've been with us for, well, if you've been with us for the past little while, or I was going to say if you've been with us the past year and a half or so, you'll know that we've been studying through the book of Mark for about that long. We've been going verse by verse through it. And the reason we do that, by the way, is because we think uh, sequential expository preaching is helpful and edifying to God's people, and it helps us teach the whole counsel of God better. And so we try to make that kind of preaching and teaching the the largest part of our scriptural diet here at Jackson Bible Church. But just to give you a quick heads up as to where we're headed for the short term, once we're done with this chapter, uh, Mark 9, we're probably going to take a short break from the book of Mark for the purpose of uh, teaching on some other specific things that the Lord has laid on our hearts as elders and under-shepherds of this church And then, of course, when we're done with those specific things, we will dive right back into Mark, right where we left off, which will be at chapter 10. So that kind of gives you an idea where we're headed, probably going into December, going into the new year even. And of course, I always love Christmas time and getting to preach on the incarnation of Christ in some form or fashion, so I'm sure that'll take up some of the time as well. But... uh, I pray that all this, not only our Mark study, but as we take a break and study some specific areas of of specific doctrines and specific areas of theology, that we'll come away as a church even more equipped in certain areas that hopefully God has in store for us. So there you go. Um, Let's get into the last couple of verses here of Mark 9 today. We're going to be looking at verses... 49 and 50, the last two verses of the chapter. And for the sake of context, let's don't just read those two verses. Let's back up and read uh, beginning at verse 42, and then we'll read all the way through 50. And just to remind you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And as with all of Scripture... I like to remind you before we read it, this is the word of the living and true God, okay? Mark 9, 42 to 50, let's read it. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. This entire section just really highlights for us the seriousness of the Christian life. Jesus, um, he has both warned us about causing others to stumble and fall into sin, verse 42, and then he has strong words about us dealing with our own sin in verses 43 to 48, and we've seen there that Jesus does not advocate a light touch with sin, does he? Alistair Begg says it this way, when it comes to our sin, Jesus does not call for toleration, he calls for amputation or eradication, if you like. And I don't really want to take a ton of time to do an in-depth review um, of what we've already looked at in previous messages, but I do want to at least remind you of of, uh, the seriousness of what Jesus calls us to in regards to sin if we are his disciples. If we are Jesus' disciples... You and I are commanded to do battle with our sin, right? We are to kill it, not coddle it. Think of a doctor when he's assessing a patient. Maybe he's assessing a very serious cancer or a very serious infection. Sometimes drastic measures have to be taken to prevent that disease from spreading to the rest of the body and becoming fatal, right? Part of that sometimes involves cutting things out or cutting things off, right? Even a limb or removing an eye or some other body part that's necessary. And though that is painful in the short run, its intention is to save your life, right? Jesus is calling us to do that with our sin. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, says Romans 13, 14. In other words, don't give it a chance. Don't give it an inch. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like we're supposed to show it very much mercy, right? Put to death what is earthly in you. And just the more that we consider what Jesus is saying here, these statements coming from the mouth of Jesus, the more that I can understand, I hope you can, why he described discipleship in the way that he did back in chapter 8 when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8, 34. So the Christian life is not a life of escape, or ease, right? We're not going to be, like the hymn writer said, we're not going to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. It's a life of, um, of doing battle with your sin, dealing with persecutions for the sake of the gospel. But we do it by the help of the Spirit of God under the authority of the Word of God, and He helps us. So that brings us now to verses uh, 49 and 50. And admittedly, 
These are difficult verses to discern just how they're meant to be taken, number one, and then how they relate to the previous verses. Some commentators tend to think that these verses are kind of some unrelated statements that Jesus made at some point in his ministry, and as Mark is writing, he just happens to include them here as he's remembering, and as he's remembering the testimony of his close friend, Peter, who's probably his eyewitness to most of these things. That might be possible, um, that these are kind of put here by Mark, but I think that there actually is somewhat of a link here, and I tend to think that it's this. I I can't be, and I, I won't be dogmatic about it, of course, but I tend to think that Jesus, as he's telling his disciples about the fires of hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, as he says in verse 48, I think as he's on the topic of fire right there, he takes the opportunity to teach them about another kind of fire. In other words, it might be that Jesus is saying, kind of, if we would word it like this, speaking of fire, let me tell you gentlemen something. And he says, everyone will be salted with fire, verse 49. So I think he's taking them back to this discipleship idea. I think he's saying, I've warned you about hell. I've warned you about this unquenchable fire that's going to be the destination of everyone who remains in their sin. But he says, know this, there is a kind of fire that everyone who follows me is going to go through as well. It's not the fires of hell. It's a refining fire. And he uses this interesting phrase, salted with fire. That's a different way of putting it, isn't it? Salted with fire. And that may actually hearken back to a passage in Leviticus 2, verse 13. You might want to jot that down if you're taking notes and look at it later. But the people of Israel there are told to season their offerings with salt. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt, Leviticus 2, 13. So, Maybe this phrase, salted with fire, is a way of summarizing, in this context, the the idea of Christian sanctification in the sense that it's not just self-sacrifice, there's that element of it with that saltedness, but it's also submission to the purifying fires of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Romans 12... Verse 1, present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. We read about this fire from the Holy Spirit from John the Baptist. Do you remember that? Matthew 3, verses 11 to 12, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry He, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's the two fires presented there, the unquenchable fire that will burn up all the chaff, and then there's the fire of the Holy Spirit's work in his people. And that Holy Spirit fire, I think, is probably what verse 49 is talking about. If you are in a period of your life where you're wondering, I don't know what you're doing here, Lord. I don't see what the purpose is in this. What is going on, you know? (laughs) What he's doing in your life with trials and afflictions and sufferings, I can tell you what he's doing to a certain degree. He is refining you. That has been his purpose from the foundation of the world to conform you to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. And those refining fires, when we go through them, they are not pleasant when you're in them, are they? They are not pleasant. But just like Hebrews 12 says, later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So um, just like these, just like the fire with its intense heat, it can remove the dross and the impurities from some sort of precious metal that's in that fire. In the same way, suffering and affliction removes the impurities from us and cultivates holiness in our lives. And when you think about what God is doing to refine us, I don't know about you, but that raises our suffering to something that is dignified and purposeful, right? We don't believe in chance or luck or happenstance. We believe in the sovereignty of God. And therefore, we believe that each and every fire that God sends us through is for a good and loving purpose. He has decreed it for our own good and for his glory. And that raises the suffering to out of the realm of purposelessness or there's no point in this. There's very much a point to it. We may not even figure out exactly what it is until glory, but we know that God has a good point and a good purpose through it. And we know what the overall purpose is, again, to conform us to the image of Christ. Ron Hamilton, better known as Patch the Pirate, some of you know who I'm talking about, he lost his eye, one of his eyes, to cancer, and he actually recently went home to heaven after a long battle with dementia. And some years ago, he saw the beauty of the purpose of these refining fires that God puts us through. And he wrote the following words in a beautiful song. He says, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness, he giveth a song. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. 
He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. And when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. Another verse toward the end of the song says, Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best, and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. It's a beautiful song. God lovingly purifies his people through the heat of affliction. Suffering is actually an integral part of being a Christian. We're told in Philippians 1, verse 29, that suffering is a given for us. And I don't know why, and I'm speaking for myself, I don't know why we're so surprised by it when God tells us so plainly, listen to it, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's God's will that we suffer for his sake. And then we have other scriptural writers like the apostle Peter saying, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13. And we hear from Jesus' own mouth the promise in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. So I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here and hinting at in verse 49. If you are a disciple of his... You're going to be salted like a sacrifice with God's loving, refining fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. And again, when you can't see the purpose, try to remember that somehow this suffering, whatever it is that you're going through, is going to bring me to a place in my walk with Christ that I would not have made it to if God had spared me from this. In other words, God has determined in his divine wisdom that it's better for me to go through this than not to. We just have to trust his sovereign purposes and promises to us as we go through it. And as we go through it, God is like, God is to us like the fourth man in the fire in Daniel 3, where Nebuchadnezzar said, didn't we throw three guys in there? I see a fourth, and one of them looks like the Son of God. He's in, the Lord Jesus hops into the fire with his people. Love that. And then when it seems especially heavy, When the sufferings and the trials and the afflictions seem especially heavy, think of Romans 8, 18. It's probably a verse we should all have memorized, to be honest. Romans 8, 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18, what a verse. So what I'm saying is, hang in there, brother, sister. Relief is coming. There will be fire. We will be salted with fire. But it is a loving, refining fire, the end of which will be more Christ-likeness, and the ultimate end will be joy, glory, eternal life with your Savior in his presence. Amen. And then we get to verse 50. And I think Jesus kind of does another word association here as well. I think he picks up on this idea of salt that he just mentions, and he takes the opportunity to talk about that. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So let's kind of just break that verse up into sections and consider it together. First of all, salt is good. And all the cooks in the house said, (laughs) you heard it straight from Jesus, salt is good. Just tell your doctor. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Salt in Jesus' day was a very important thing. Just think about this. They didn't have anything close to refrigeration like we have, right? We're talking about the first century here. So the way they would preserve their food was to apply generous amounts of salt to it. And in this region especially, they would get their salt from the nearby Dead Sea. And the New Testament kind of, the New Testament writers pick up on this, and Jesus uses this as a metaphor for what Christians are to be to the world. It's very interesting. Listen to a few passages. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 13, this is a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Luke 14, 34 is also a parallel passage to to, uh, Mark 9. It says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Very close to what uh, verse 50 says. And then Colossians 4, 6 brings a slightly different angle to the idea of salt, which we won't have time to get into in great detail. But Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, how you ought to answer each person. So salt is good. So as we think about this and that metaphor that Jesus is, Jesus is using here, let's think about that. What does salt do? What is its primary function? And let's see if we can pick up on some of the nuances of why he uses this metaphor, because if we can extract some of that, we might understand more about what he's talking about. So let's think about that. Salt brings with it um, pleasing flavor, right? It preserves things. 
from corruption. It was also used sometimes as an antiseptic in this time period. It creates thirst in people. We could probably go on with a few more things, but there's a few there. Let's talk about two of those things today. First of all, let's talk about how um, salt brings a pleasing flavor. It flavors. Here's the point, I think. Just as salt flavors food, Christians are to flavor the world with the gospel of Christ. Think about what the world offers for a minute, okay? Does this world have any good news to offer us? None. (laughs) The most common worldview, and by world, I mean this world system. What does it have to offer us? What good news does it have to offer us? The most common worldview today, by far, which we'll just call secularism, tells us that we're all just evolved animals with no more dignity or ultimate purpose than a fish or some other animal. It offers no concrete reasons to treat people with love or honor. It offers no real foundation for any meaningful idea of what's right or wrong. In other words, there's no objective morality available. And when you die, the secular worldview says, it was all ultimately purposeless. You could try your best while you're alive to kind of inject some temporary feelings of purpose into your life in various areas, but it all just ends up being arbitrary It ends up being a fiction, really, that uh, when you get to the end, it ultimately meant nothing in the grand scheme. That is the gospel of secularism. But what does the light of Scripture tell us? What does the Bible tell us? What does God tell us? He tells us that human beings are much more valuable than any animal. We're made in His image. Right, Because of that, we ought to treat one another with love and honor and respect. And we're taught that he's given us an ultimate purpose that will extend even far beyond this short life that we have on the earth. He tells us we're created for his glory and for the purpose of getting to enjoy him forever. And that's... In Scripture, it also tells us why the world is the way that it is. Why is it so broken? Why is there so much evil and corruption and suffering? And it tells us what actually is good and bad, good and evil, right and wrong. And it's not arbitrarily based on human opinion, but it's based on God's character, His nature. And it teaches teaches us that our problem is not, you know, lack of education Lack of opportunity, lack of social reform, none of those things. Our problem is the sin that's in each and every heart, right? And God tells us that sin is what has separated us from Him, and it's broken the good relationship that we had with Him. But there's good news. He didn't leave us like that. Praise the Lord. He purposed 
from before time even began to save a people for his own glory and to show mercy to them. And at the right time, he sends his son, the Lord Jesus. He lives on the earth. He lives perfectly. He dies. He rises again for the salvation of all those that the Father had given him. And in time, he grants them new hearts. They finally see the beauty of what Jesus has done in the gospel, and they come running to him in repentance and faith. And then he subsequently makes them a mouthpiece for his gospel in the world so that more people can hear and believe. And it's just this big cycle that continues. And he's constantly building this thing he calls the church so that one day around the throne of heaven, there will be people from every corner of the earth enjoying God, praising him, living in perfect peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction and pleasure like we have never known, but like God had originally intended for his creation. And I don't know if you've come to Christ yet or not in your life, but the invitation still stands for you to repent of your sin and come to him today and be made right with him. And when you do that, the glory of it is it was God who took the initiative to draw you and to give you faith. And he gives you this eternal inheritance in heaven. <clears throat> this is the good news of the gospel. In the biblical worldview, in contrast to that secularism worldview, says that what we do now in this life actually matters. There is purpose. I've just given it to you. I've tried to summarize it there real quick. What we do affects eternity. So the good news of the gospel operates like a pleasing flavor of salt in a flavorless, bland, dark world devoid of any hope. The gospel brings salt to it, gives it this pleasing flavor. And then here's the other thing salt does that we'll talk about today. It preserves. How do Christians function as a preservative in this world? Maybe we don't think of this one deeply enough. I don't know. Christians, I think, are part of the restraining hand of God on society. Christians are like, this is not all we are, but this is one function that God has given us. We are like roadblocks that block evil from running unrestrained in the culture. God, you know, uses people wherever they're at, even in the public square, to stand up for biblical truth and for righteousness and justice. Think about what would happen if all of a sudden there were no Christians on the earth. If as soon as a person was saved, they went straight to heaven. What would happen? What external, God would be able to restrain in the heart, and he could do as he pleases, but what external restraint would there be against wickedness? What would keep lost men and women from running headlong 
into whatever perversion the fallen human heart desired to go into. They would be saying, all right, we got rid of those pesky Christians, right? Now we can really make progress. And of course, by progress, they mean, they wouldn't say it this way, but progress further and further away from God and his moral mandates for society and for human beings. And then we look at the, we look at the state of the world and how confused our society is about so many things, sexuality, gender, the sanctity of life, origins, host of other things. And we can become discouraged by what we see and hear. We feel like, from a, at least from a moral standpoint, society, our culture is kind of just swirling around that big toilet bowl, right? No, I've used that example before, but that's what comes to mind sometimes. Lord, we're just swirling around the bowl, aren't we? Getting ready to go down. But God says we, his people, are to function as salt in a complementary thing, as light in this world. We won't talk about light much today, but we're to function as salt and light in this world. We are to act as his preserving agents in a world that's just becoming more and more confused and corrupt. What does that look like, though? Well, it means, I think, we ought to be active in promoting righteousness in this world. When we have the opportunity, in whatever sphere God has given us any influence or opportunity to enter, Uh, When we have the opportunity, we ought to stand up and clearly proclaim what God says about the issues of our day, even if it means being hated or ridiculed or called names. We want to, as this preserving agent, we want to counteract the world's confusion by bringing sanity to it, calling evil Evil, calling good, good. So we're not to be idle, for one thing. We are to be promoting justice by standing up for life, for instance. We live in a culture of death, don't we? A culture where a woman can murder her unborn child in every single state of this United States of America. And it's a right that's protected by law. Sure, there's some restrictions in some states, but it's still legal in every single state. That's the type of blatant injustice that I think is appropriate for Christians to speak about as often as possible, whether it's to our neighbors, reasoning with them, or whether it's in the public square. This is how we bring the salt of the gospel to bear upon society. Do you see what I'm saying? Take any issue uh, that's clearly spoken about in Scripture, and Christians ought to lovingly, yes, lovingly, but boldly tell the world what God has said about that thing. We are to point people to the fact that God 
made us and that his laws and standard are in accordance with human flourishing. And to go against his law is to go against human flourishing, right? The world thinks it can flourish apart from God. We're here to say, as the salt, we can't and we won't flourish without listening to our Creator and obeying Him. And woe to us if we call good evil and evil good. That isn't going to end well for us. That isn't going to end well for society. These are the type of things that we stand up for. And we say, not just amend your ways, sinner. We say, come to Christ and be saved. Part of that is just, part of the gospel itself is just being clear about what sin is, right? We talked about that in our prayer meeting this morning. If we can't agree on what sin is, then how are we going to be saved from it? How are we going to repent of something we don't even say is a sin? How is God going to save us from something that isn't sinful? So defining sin becomes paramount in our culture. And we can't get in shouting matches or heated debates about what sin is without appealing to the standard. It's not our opinion as Christians that this is wrong or that's wrong or that's right or this is preferable. We say, doesn't really matter what I say. What does God say? So we're here to say, society, you as a human being will not flourish apart from God and his standard. And in order for you to understand that, you need to come to Christ and get a new heart. This is the preserving aspect of Christians in society, I think. How does God save people? He saves them through the hearing of the Word of God, right? Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So another thing that would happen, going back to that example of if there were no Christians on this earth acting as a preservative or a flavoring with the gospel... Another thing that would happen if, if, if God took all of his saved people off the earth, the world would be left without a gospel witness. And so in love, he leaves his people here in the world for the express purpose of flavoring and preserving it through, not just our, somehow we're influential people. No, not at all. We preserve it through the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Not us, but the gospel, God's word. And I think that maybe more thought ought to be given toward this, this aspect of what we're called to do in a day where many Christians have this view that we're kind of just supposed to hunker down and wait for the rapture. We're just going to retreat into our safe place, never bother with engaging society, never speak up in the public square, never share the gospel because it's too far gone anyways. Remember the toilet bowl? We're not going to stick our hand in there. <laughs> but I think that kind of attitude 
Doesn't it fly directly in the face of Jesus calling us to be salt in the world? So we ought to be zealous people for his truth. We ought to be people who don't have any shame for standing for what's right in God's eyes. We don't look for the smiles of men. We just want his smile, right? And we ought never to be ashamed of what God says about anything. We could no doubt talk for a long time about the ramifications of how Christians are to be salt in the world. But let's move on to the next statement that Jesus makes where he says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Or in the words of Matthew, if it loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So ask ourselves this question and kind of put it together with what we were just talking about, what Jesus is talking about, how we're to be salt. How good is unsalty salt? You say, I didn't even know that was possible. Can, can salt lose its flavor? It's interesting when you look at uh, the way they harvested salt in Jesus' day, they would collect these big salt rocks from the Dead Sea, and it was possible for them to collect these rocks that looked like pure salt, but they actually contained many other minerals, like gypsum is, is one example. And the salt could actually get washed away to where you were left with a rock that looked like salt, but it wasn't salty. It was useless for flavoring or preserving anything. And so here's the point. Jesus is warning us about losing our saltiness. He's saying, do not fail to be what I have called you to be. Now, how might we lose our saltiness? Well, very simply, we could just not do all the things that we've already talked about, right? We could retreat into our hole. Or we could say it this way. Maybe we look back at verses 43 to 48 where Jesus is telling us to deal with our sin. Don't deal lightly with it. Cut off your hand or your foot or your eye. Of course, not literally, but deal seriously with your sin. Don't give it a chance. And if we take those body parts, maybe we could say, here's what unsalty salt looks like when we're doing with our hands and our feet, and our eyes, the very same things that the world does. We go the same places they go. We do the same things they do. We watch the same things they watch. We participate in the same things they're doing. In other words, we're just blending in, right, with the culture. We've lost our saltiness if that happens. There ought to be a distinction right, between God's people and the world as far as how we live, how we talk, how we work, how we do business, how we vote, how we raise our family. There ought to be a distinction between us and the world on the things that we value. There ought to be a distinction between us and the world on how we use our time and our money and our talents, etc. We are to be a sanctified people, and the word Sanctify literally means separated for holy use. 
to devote and set apart for the worship of God. That's what we are. God sets us apart for the worship of Him. And so we cannot and should not retreat from the world. That's not what that separation is about. It's not retreating and escaping the world. It's remaining in it while being distinct from it, right? And when we make it, if we ever make it to the point, you assess for yourself in your own life, if we make it to the point where the people of God cannot be distinguished from the world by how they live and think and write on social media and how we listen and how we obey God and how we communicate, all these things. When no one can tell the difference, that's when you know you're looking at a worthless kind of Christianity, the kind of just throw it out and trample on. It's good for nothing. In fact, it might not be Christianity at all. It might just be religiosity, right? And Jesus says that kind of cultural Christianity is just useless as unsalty salt. We ought to be aware, I think, that Christians, God's people, are often the very first thing that people learn about Christianity. Before they open a Bible, before they set foot in a church, they see Christians. They see how you and I walk and talk and what we value and what we stand up for and how we treat people, how we prioritize our time and our energy. And we're either going to adorn the gospel with our life or we're going to discredit it to someone. I think there's a reason why Paul tells his protege, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers, 1 Timothy 4, 16. In a way, that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here, to, is saying here as well. Keep a close watch on your life. Live in such a, we ought to live in such a hopeful and godly way <clears throat> that people end up doing what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, where they come to us and they say, what's up with this hopeful attitude you have all the time? They come and they ask you about the hope that is within you, 1 Peter 3.15, they see this difference. They see this distinction. They taste the saltiness, right? Churches as a whole have faced this temptation as well. The earthly, an earthly form of wisdom would say, we need to model our church services after something unbelievers enjoy. Let's cater to them rather than modeling what we see in Scripture, which is the worship of God. And in that way also, the salt becomes unsalty. If the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? I think the point is you can't. Then he says this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
I think if we are to influence others in this world, we need to begin right here among the people of God with our relationships in the church. If you have this kind of salt that we've talked about, if, you're, um, if you are governed in your attitudes and words and values and decisions and everything, if you are governed by Scripture, that is going to cultivate peace in the church rather than unrest or disunity. And when a diverse group of people have true peace with one another in this world, that sticks out because that's rare, right? When there's a true peace and love amongst people who don't really have a whole lot in common except for their love of Christ, it kind of baffles the world. What's up with that? How can they do that? What's going on there? It speaks to something supernatural, Jesus said himself, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. And that's where we start, and then it extends outward. If you remember, just a few verses back, the disciples had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest among them. You remember that? They were not at peace with one another in those moments. They were in competition with one another. Jesus says, have this salt in you that I've been speaking of and be at peace with one another. When we, when we govern ourselves, not by our emotions or our fleshly desires, but instead we govern ourselves by God's truth, it has that humbling effect on us. We end up becoming servants of all, verse 35. So this is what the salt produces. Gospel flavoring, preservation of righteousness in this world by the grace of God, and peace among ourselves. So let me just ask you before we pray, if you are a Christian today, do you think of yourself this way? Do you think of yourself as salt? That's what Jesus says you are. Are you flavoring the world with the gospel of Christ? Ask it this way and get more, sometimes getting more analytical helps us. On a scale of one to 10, how faithful are you in taking the gospel to your friends and family? Honestly, assess yourself. Is there room for improvement? If so, ask God to help you. He will. Assess yourself here also. Are you promoting in preserving righteousness in God's world, whether it's in your family, whether it's in the church, or whether it's in the culture at large, could you possibly put forth more effort and thought into improving your saltiness in this world as far as preserving God's righteousness in the sphere that he has put you in? What is your, here's the last question, what is your mentality on how you relate to the world. Do we have an escapist mentality where, again, we prefer to hunker down and huddle up and wait on the Lord's return? Or do we have the mentality that we're gonna do whatever we can by God's grace and power to fulfill our God-given role to be salt and take the gospel to the world? Have salt in yourselves. Let's, let's pray together.
Father, we ask for your help. Because in ourselves, we will not do these things well that we've talked about today. We will not be able to be salt and light in this world without your Spirit's power upon us. I pray, Lord, that you would not let us be a group of Christians who retreat from the battle. Make us people with a backbone who will take the sword of the Spirit, the truth of God, to the very gates of hell if necessary. Give us a love for you and a love for people that would prevent us, Lord, from sitting idle while people drop off into hell every day. May we seek, Lord, to take every thought captive to obey Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. Raise us up, Lord, to be courageous Christians who are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, not ashamed of any part of your truth, and use us for your good purposes, for your glory. That is our desire. Make us faithful, not slothful or fearful, and forgive us where we have not been what we should be, and empower us, Lord, from this moment forward with new resolve to be what you've called us to be in obedience to your command. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.